0: John 15, and we are going through a series entitled Unveiled, and this Unveiled series is a study through John 13 all the way uh, to the end of the book of John in the Bible, and so we find ourselves now in uh, John 15 verses 1 through 11. So what I want to do is I want to read it, and then after I uh, read, I'll read verses 1 to 9. But after I read that, then I'll pray and then we'll, we'll go at the scriptures together. Now, there's one unique thing if you're a guest with us today. Uh, we don't do this all the time, but we are going to make some opportunity just to apply the message to our own hearts in today's gathering. Which means um, we will take the Lord's Supper, which we do almost every week, but we'll have a time of just personal prayer. But we'll also have a time of if you want to be prayed for or if you feel led to pray for other people, we will have that, uh, make that available for us and just encourage that with kind of an extended prayer time at the end of our service today. So just wanted to give you a heads up that that's happening. And I have two questions that I want you to be thinking about as I read and then go to pray. Here's the two questions. Might you pray these two prayers? God, teach me. One thing that will help me be a better worshiper of you. Teach me one thing. It also could be a a change me kind of prayer. The second thing is, might you give me one person to love in this service or as I leave today? One person that I can extend your love to, either in this service or as I leave today. God, change me, make me a stronger worshiper of you, and one person that we might love today. So let me read, and then we'll pray. Word of God says this John 15. I am the true vine. Whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now abide in my love. Let me pray. Father, I ask. I ask for clarity of heart clarity of mind, and I ask for humility that we might listen to your voice through your word, that you would encourage us, and that, Father, we would give you everything, that, Father, we wouldn't just know what it means to abide in you and bear fruit, But Father, we would feel it. We would actually commune with you and have fellowship with you, the living God, in this moment together. So protect us, I pray, from sheer or mere intellectualism. Protect us from letting our feelings kind of get the best of us. And right now, help us to worship you. Teach us, I pray. Make us ready for your word. And give us the strength by your spirit to act on it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. As I've already said, we are in a series entitled Unveiled. Unveiled is given because in John 13, specifically through the end of 16, the beginning of 17 of the book of John, Jesus is unveiling himself himself to the world. He is unveiling himself first to his followers, and then in chapters 18 through the end of the book, he unveils himself to the world by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead on the third day. He is putting forth in 3D by his actions at the end of the book what he now tells his followers in this last, what's called the farewell discourse, his final words to his followers. So think of this intimate setting with him and his followers, and now these are the words that he is giving them. We have already studied chapter 13 and 14, and now we dive into John 15. And so we want to see in John 15, we will begin to see three things. Now, before I give you the three things, I want to tell you, I preached a message on John 15 back in October of 2014, and several other times I have um, taught on this passage here at the church So this will not seek to kind of dissect every single verse and understand every fabric or fiber of it. But we are going after what I believe are the central tenets of this passage found in these three ideas. And here they are. Number one, the centrality of abiding. Centrality because it's primary. It's central. It is the hub that everything else revolves around. To the necessity of bearing fruit. Bearing the fruit of love is not optional. And Jesus says it is a must. Now, how does the centrality of abiding and the necessity of bearing fruit come together and are sutured together? It is by Jesus inviting us into the opportunity of prayer. Number three. So the centrality of abiding, the necessity of bearing fruit, and the opportunity of prayer. Now what we need is we need some backdrop because Jesus starts out with his last of seven I am statements. He says I am and then he completes the sentence and when he says I am he is alluding back to the Old Testament, when God says, I am, and he is claiming himself to be God himself with every one of these seven statements. He is declaring to his followers, I am God himself. I have no beginning. I have no end. I am God. But now, the last of the seven, he phrases it this way, I am the true vine. Now, I don't know about you, but as I hear that, that feels just a little awkward. You know, I am a tree trunk. You know, <laughs> so It's just like, okay, I need some help here. Well, as awkward as it seems to us, it was not to his followers because there's background. There's backdrop, and the backdrop is found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5 and Isaiah 27 are the backdrop for Jesus's words here so that they don't land on his followers as odd we see the first setting in Isaiah 5, and it's the setting of a vineyard. And here's what he says in verse 1 of chapter 5. God says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. This vineyard... represents the people of God, his people. And we get that confirmed for us in verse 7 of the same chapter when he says this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. It is the people of God. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And if you read the verses in between that sin, which I read verse 1 and verse 7 for you, what's in between is that this vineyard, the people of God, were meant to produce fruit. Instead of producing healthy grapes, that's what a vine produces, it produced wild grapes. The image is they were supposed to bear fruit by remaining in God. Instead, what was produced in their lives was rebellion. And that's what's summarized in verse 7. Let's look at it again. God looked for justice. That's the fruit they should have borne. But instead, he saw violence or bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, God's ways to be carried out. But instead, what he saw was an outcry. He saw rebellion. And so the vineyard was meant to be a people who are in God himself and producing healthy fruit. But instead, they were a train wreck. They were not following God. They were rebelling. And so later on in Isaiah chapter 27, he paints the picture that he will work one day. And listen to it. Isaiah 27 verses 2, 3, and 6. He says this. In that day, a day to come, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. He's excited. I, the Lord, am its keeper. And every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it day and night. And in the days to come, Jacob shall take root. And Israel, that is the vineyard, Israel will blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. The picture is one day there will come a fruitful people of God. So you get picture one. They were rebellious. The fruit was wild. They were not following God's righteousness. Picture two is that God promises to work and to keep them and to care for them in such a way that they produce fruit to the whole world. How do you get from picture one to picture two? John 15. Jesus says... I am. I am that keeper. I am that Lord. And I am the true vine. I am the new and true Israel. I am doing what Israel could not do. And through me, the people of God will be able to bear much fruit. Jesus is the linchpin to the people of God finding the joy of bearing the fruit of love to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus says, John 15 verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Which means he's the one that prunes it, takes care of it, waters it, nurtures it. He's the vine dresser. Now verse 2, every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This is the work of the vine dresser. The branch Into the vine will bear fruit. If it's not bearing fruit, the branch is what? Dead. That's right. It's dead. Have you ever walked through a forest and you've seen a branch just limply hanging and it's all dried up and there's nothing on it, but the tree is blossoming and full of leaves. Have you seen that? Why is the branch hanging off dry and not producing any leaves? Because it's not in the vine. It's not in the trunk. It's lost all of its source of strength. And so Jesus says, using the same analogy, already you are clean, verse 3, because of the word that I have spoken to you. That means his followers have heard his word and they have trusted him. So faith is the foundation for what? For verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. Faith is the foundation for what this verse might be called is union with Christ. How does a sinner get united to a Savior in such a way that he has communion with the living God? Answer, not through his works. But because of the word of God that has come and trusting in that word. It's by faith alone. And then this relationship begins to be feathered out for us. Abide in me and I abide in you. Trust in me. I come and I reside in you. This is the beauty of the gospel. You will never be left alone. He abides in you, as he's already told us in chapter 14, by the power of his spirit. The Holy Spirit resides in us, strengthens, encourages, admonishes us, instructs us, guides us all by faith. And then he says, goes on in verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, by itself it dies, right? It just, it's out there. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus says. You need me, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if people are skeptical out there or people not trusting in Christ, you would say, I do stuff all the time. Don't give me this garbage. I'm very productive in my business. I'm making a lot of money. I have a car and I have a house, etc. This is talking about something that's of eternal value. Something that will last beyond the grave. As one pastor said, there's no U-Hauls behind hearses. You're not taking squat with you. What matters is who you trust in. And if you trust in yourself on that last day, it will have been a futile trust. But if you trust in the one who did what you couldn't do, who died the death that you deserve, who took the punishment for your sin upon himself so that if you trust in him, you wouldn't receive the punishment you deserve, who raised from the dead three days later so that you would have hope over sin, Satan, and yes, over death, and you would have an eternity with him. That's the good news. And your hope must rest in Jesus. And so he says, apart from him, you can do nothing to secure your eternity with the Father. Everything for your ultimate joy and satisfaction rests in abiding in him. And that's why he says in verses 9, 10, and 11, and I'll read it. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, I love you. And he proved it by going to the cross. You can say a lot of things, but you can't look at Jesus and say, you don't love me. He died for sinners like me and you. And then verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, I'm speaking these things to you, verse 11, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What's he saying? The central part of your core joy is going to be found in you abiding in Christ. Now, I've used this analogy before, but I think it's helpful to say again, just so that we understand what abiding is. It's like the mountain climber who goes to the mountain. It's not enough to climb to the top and then run back down. Abiding is going to the top and resting there, looking out over the beautiful view and enjoying the moment. That's abiding in Christ. It is not just, I'll come to you and I need you, thank you, no relationship involved. No, it is I come to you and I need you all the time. I need you. Abiding is a declaration that my only hope is in Christ. And it's like we hear from those in the Bible. When Jacob said this, he said, God, I will not let you go until you bless me. You are my greatest need. I will not let you go. I need you more than anything else. It's like when Moses said, show me your glory, O God. Show me your greatness. What I need to see is not all this provision and all these materials. What I need to see is you. And if I see you, I've seen enough. And so to the degree, he says, if you don't go before me, I don't want to go at all because you've got to be with me. Paul said in the book of Philippians that nothing compares with knowing Christ Jesus. Everything, he calls it rubbish, garbage, trash, refuse, compared to knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. David says this, one thing I ask, and that is what I'm going to seek. That I may gaze upon your beauty and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One thing. One thing is central to our abiding joy and tapping into the joy that is in the Son, and that is abiding in Him. Now, you could get a little confused as you read this and understand abiding. Abiding has two different aspects. You might be saying, well, does abide mean just trusting in Christ in that one moment, and he saves me, and then I'm fine? Or does it mean kind of an ongoing relationship with him, where I abide in him day after day after day? And the answer is yes. It's both. It's trusting him initially, and when you genuinely initially trust him, you will genuinely initially continue over and over to pursue him in a relationship. And so Jesus isn't thinking moment in time only. He's thinking of This is a relationship with me. It is to abide in me over and over. The verb is not a past tense. Do it one time. It is something that happens and continues to happen in the life of a follower of Christ. And so what is central? And honestly, when you read old saints, when you read some missionary biographies, You will read of people who mourned for God, who prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out of season. And when they found him, there was a sense of sweetness and there was a hunger that was contagious. And this is what Jesus is inviting us into. Abide in me, he says. That's central to your life. However, what else he says is that it's central so that you might bear fruit. Look at how many times he talks about bearing fruit. Look at verse 2. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he just kind of brings it up out of nowhere because he assumes that we're supposed to bear fruit. He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The point of being a branch in the vine is that you blossom. Blossom. The point of abiding in Christ is not only that you have a rich fellowship with him, but it's that that love fills you up so much it overflows into how you talk and how you use your hands and your feet and how you listen and how you care. So you might ask, oh, what is the fruit he's talking about? What is the fruit? Well, the fruit here is more than but never less than the fruit of love. He's already said earlier in the book of John, the people outside will know that you're my followers on how you love one another. The fruit that he's looking for is a people who are fighting for unity, who are praying for one another, who are forgiving one another, who are loving one another, considering others better than themselves. And it's so shocking in a self-centered world that people will say, yeah, they're following somebody different than I'm following. Love is the fruit that he is calling for us to bear. But I said it's not only love, it's more than love, because like Galatians 5.22, it's what, what's the fruit of the Spirit? Starts with love, right? Love, but then it goes on. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are fruits, fruit, singular, of the Spirit, That we must bear. So how might you summarize it? Fruit is anything that reflects our Savior. The fruit is something that conforms us to look more and more like Him. Or helps others look more and more like Him. It is, could be summarized by the fruit of love. Now, this is not optional. He says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. This is something that we must do. And if we don't bear fruit, he says in verse 2, that every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. The one who is abiding, though, will, because he is working in in the branch, will produce fruit. So not only do we have the centrality of abiding and the necessity of bearing fruit, but now we must ask this. Centrality of abiding... If we focus in on abiding in Christ, some might mistakenly say, well, then that means I must be a monk. I must go out, must find a closet, hang out there, never get out of my house. What what holiness is, is just pursuing God in a relationship with Him. Others might say, no, what really matters is the necessity of bearing fruit. And so what happens is, it becomes not how can I honor Christ and reflect Christ, it becomes a social agenda. Just how can I be kind and do good as you define good and kindness? What bridges the gap and makes Christ in his glory and knowing him central while necessarily making obedience, loving others, and exercising justice and mercy in the world? It is the opportunity of prayer. Prayer is the fuel that makes the car go. It is the glue that sticks bearing the fruit of love and abiding in the vine together. Prayer is necessary and it's an opportunity that he invites us into in this moment. And we see that in verse 7 and 8. So here he goes. He says in verse 7, if you abide in me. And my words abide in you. There's this sense of relationship. There's this sense of His Word is changing our hearts as we dwell in His Word. Then ask whatever. Ask whatever you wish, whatever you desire. Ask. Jesus' prayers or Jesus' recommendations for us to pray could be summarized by this one word, ask. Come to me, ask. Ask, he says, seek me, knock, and the door will be opened for you, Matthew 7. Ask me whatever you desire, and it will be done for you. And by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do you see why I call it the suture that joins them together? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then pray and you will bear fruit. You see that? Abide in me, let my words abide in you. Now come to me and ask. And what will happen is God is glorified and fruit is born. And so how is the Father glorified? Look at verse 8. It says, by this my Father is glorified. I believe it's intentionally ambiguous what the this is. Because I believe he is glorified as we come to him in prayer. And he is glorified when we produce the fruit of him before others. Now I'm reading a book entitled A Praying Life. It's a wonderful book by Paul Miller. And we have several copies in our resource area. The first room that you come to uh, in in the building there where the youth meet in the first service. And we're selling them at a discount so that you can have it if you want it and would like to read it. But this book has been remarkable. Subtitle is Connecting with God in a Distracting World. I found it to be raw. I found it to be honest. I found every question that I've ever asked personally about prayer, this dude has asked. Some of them have answers. Some of them don't, right? So this has been really helpful. And I encourage you with it. But there's a couple things that I want to take from Paul Miller. And I want to give to us to encourage us to pray. And then hopefully what will happen is in our time together, we will apply it. We'll start praying. But as I said last week, as I was looking at John 14, prayer can be summarized by two words. Surrender and ask. Surrender and ask. And let's just take asking. Asking. Let me read the verse that was in John 14 last week. It says, whatever you ask in my name, John 14 verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask, he wants you to ask. Listen to James 4, 2 through 3. It should be on the screen behind me. You don't have because you don't ask. So ask, he says. You get it? But then he says there's a, there's two problems with prayer he's seeking to address here. One is that the people of God don't ask and therefore they don't have. But two is that they might ask, but what's this say? You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, to spend it on your passions. There's there's two ways to ask. There's There's two issues with asking. One is that you don't ask, but the other is that you ask for solely selfish reasons that you may spend it on your own selfish pleasure. And so there's a middle road. These are two cliffs that you might fall off on. And I think it's no clearer than it is when Jesus comes to us, and so there's one way that God says, you've got to ask, you've got to ask, but don't refuse to come to him. You've got to come to him, but also don't ask with selfish motives. What does that look like? Let's look at Matthew 26. Jesus says this, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, have you ever wondered why he asked at all? He knew he was going to have to die. He's been telling everybody he's going to have to die. His word would be broken. Why ask? Because going to God in prayer is more than just an intellectual thought process. It is a feeling. It is a giving your heart to God. It is a pleading with Him to change you in the moment. It is a relationship. It's not just mental, it's all of you heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus did not fall off on this side of the cliff. And refused to ask. No, he asked and listened to him. He says, Father, if it be possible, let the cup pass from me. I don't want this. He's raw. He's open. I don't want this suffering. If there's some other way, would you do it? That's the asking. Ask whatever. But then there's also surrender. And this is how Jesus ends his prayer. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Surrender. You know what is best. You are most loving. And I surrender my heart to you. Paul Miller says this. When it comes to the asking part and just sharing our hearts Paul Miller says this, sometimes we try so hard to be good that we aren't real. Oh, I know this. Maybe this isn't going to happen or I'm not in the right spot. So, you know, I'm not relationally ready to come to God. I got to kind of clean myself up. He says, sometimes we try so hard to be good that we aren't real. The result is functional deism, which means it's where we are separated from God. God is far removed and not intimately involved. That's deism. And the real you, here's a beautiful phrase, the real you doesn't encounter the real God. You don't bring your fears. You don't bring your tears. You don't bring your frustrations or your your anger. You don't bring all your struggles. You just bring the fixed up you. But the real you must encounter the real God who says, come to me and abide in me. You don't get fixed and then abide. You get fixed by abiding. By coming and dwelling. Paul Miller goes on to say this. Jesus is real about his feelings. But they don't control him. Nor does he try to control God with them. He's real about his feelings, but they don't control him, nor does he try to control God with them. Well, I'm sharing my feelings, and if you don't show up and move in this certain way, then all of a sudden, God, you're on trial, and you've blown it, and I'm upset at you. He doesn't try to manipulate God. He's just raw and honest, and he says, surrender. Whatever you wish is what I want. This is where the psalmist says in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, only says it once, but I said it three times, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you the desires of your heart. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. So friends, ask and surrender, and I just want you to know God is answering prayers all over our church. I sent out an email this week. I put it on Facebook as well, and it sounded probably a little desperate, so I got quite a few replies. The, the, the heading in the email was, I need your help. <laughs> so I'm imagining some were panicked. But I did get a lot of responses. And what I needed people's help with was for them to just take a moment to say how they have seen God answer prayers in their lives. And so I'm going to give some to you. I'm going to give you just a few, a small sliver of all the many answers to prayers from the people of God in this church. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is because I want you to know God hears his people. And he's powerful to answer. And so you should be encouraged to go to him. You have not because you ask not. Go to him. He invites you into a relationship with him. So go to him. Listen to some of these. Now, I told the people that I would share these anonymously. And so you're going to hear things like, well, this wife said about her husband. You know, it just feels a little vague, but hopefully it'll be helpful. Okay, here we go. There was a wife who shared that her husband had to walk away from a job that had terrible influences on him. And I'm just reading these as they were given to me. In the midst of a greatly reduced income, I asked God, and this is a one to start off with, I asked God for a real piano, because she homeschools, and piano lessons for her kids for one year. And I want to report that we got that piano and we got one complete year of wonderful lessons. She goes on to share another one. While moving to North Carolina, we knew that God wanted us to come to North Carolina. So we put a contract on our house. And on closing day, we were driving down from Virginia to sign some papers on our new home. And my husband had no job offer. I prayed that God would take care of it. I did not want a mortgage with no job. That's a good plan. Halfway down, coming to North Carolina, her husband gets a phone call with a job offer. The Lord answered her prayer. One more. While pregnant with a child, the doctors saw a large tumor in my child's chest. And the doctors were concerned that he had additional disabilities. We prayed for God to heal him or to make us okay with his health issues. Closer to the end of the pregnancy, after numerous ultrasound and appointments, my son was free and clear of any tumors or debilitating developments. Another person came to me and shared this. The one time I always go back to was where God's hand was abundantly clear was when I returned from Scotland. Having lived among the people that I was trying to serve in Scotland, I desired to live in close proximity to this church that I was attending. After deciding I was going to attend TCC, this treasure in Christ Church, for those of you who are guests, that's us, I desired to live in downtown Raleigh. Having just returned, I didn't know any singles, only my married friends, and I couldn't live with them. So I called out to God to provide because my heart's desire was to live among the people he wanted me to reach out to. Within a week of the decision to move into downtown Raleigh, God providing an amazing house, two blocks from where the church was meeting, with two amazing roommates that I had never met before. And it was a smooth transition. And God answered my prayers. We had several prayers that were answered just this week. One was shared about a man who was praying with a woman who was sharing just her struggles of friendship and he prayed that God would call um, move in somebody's life to call or to reach out to this person just to initiate a relationship and later he got home and his wife said I was just burdened by the spirit of God. To call this lady who I never knew and did not talk to. And so I just picked up the phone and I called her. And it was the very woman that he had prayed with earlier that day. There's another one where our people have been serving all over our city. Seeking to share and to show the love of Jesus in practical ways. And one of them is SIT. We're so thankful for international students at NC State. We just want to bless them in one way is that we want to share the good news of Jesus with them because we believe that's crucial to life. And so we have been praying that God would convert and change hearts there for years. And this past week, a Chinese individual professed faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And God answered our prayers. There was another one. This woman is a notary. She says, my notary commission through the North Carolina Secretary of State's office is up for renewal in March. So, I received an email this morning from the Secretary of State advising me to take their online test, which asks very technical questions, which means I would have to reread the Notary Guidelines book. That's got to be fun reading. Filled with lots of rules and regulations, which I have already done to get my current commission. And so I prayed. Lord, make this a mistake. I would rather spend time memorizing your word than having to reread notary guidelines. Please change this. Well, she just received a second email. This was on Tuesday from the Secretary of State advising that her new commission was just issued. And all she has to do is walk down to the Register of Deeds office to be sworn in for another five years. No test to be taken. I got one more. Just a sliver of how God hears our prayers and answers them. Even though I know the Lord has answered many prayers for me and my family over the years, there is one time especially that always sticks out in my mind because it was no doubt that God was working and doing. Six years ago, one of my brothers and I were in a fatal car accident. And he was hurt very badly. He had a traumatic brain injury and was in a coma. And the doctor said he would never wake up or if he did, he would be brain dead. They suggested looking into nursing homes that we could put him into. Of course, there was so much prayer going up for him and we praise the Lord that in this situation, his answer was yes. On March 1st, the Lord allowed my brother to wake up from his coma. When the doctor who had said he would never wake up heard that he had awakened, he didn't believe it, and he wanted to see him for himself. My brother had some memory loss when he woke up, and the traumatic brain injury was still prevalent, but he had begun to heal really quickly at a lot faster pace than usual coma patients would heal. In September of that same year, he got married, and if you would meet him today, you would never know that he has a traumatic brain injury. And next month, my brother and sister-in-law will welcome their fourth child into the world. The Lord has done great things, not only to heal him, but all the many opportunities that through that situation, his word was able to go forth of his powerful work. Friends, God is healing. God is working. God is answering prayer. God's power is unmistakable, and his goodness is unmatched, and he hears the prayers of his people. So God says, pray. Believe me, he says. Pray. Seek him. Ask whatever. And even Paul Miller says, I encourage you to not only seek him, but to write down your prayers so that when he answers them, you remember what you prayed, and you can write down the answers. I've been doing that in my phone in an Evernote of just prayers that I'm praying and then how he's been answering them and so encouraged to watch him work. However, I know what it's like to listen to that and to almost be more frustrated than thankful. And here's what I mean. Some of you might be thinking, well, good for them. It's not my story. Because every single person in here has been told no or has had to wait for clarity, right? I know I do. I have prayers right now that I'm praying weekly for physical healing, even in my own family that haven't happened. Prayers for specific people to be set free from specific addictions or entrapment to sin that has not happened. I have prayers for specific people to trust Christ and experience his love and grace for the first time and it hasn't happened. I have prayers even for money for a gymnatorium that we might be able to serve this community and we might be able to meet in one service but that has not happened yet. So what is it? Is it that those people that have these answered prayers they're more spiritual? Well, I intentionally want to tell you that, no, they're train wrecks like you and I, and they would be fine with me saying that. What about these prayers? The answer is wait, or the answer might be no, or the answer might be in a different way than you realize, but when it happens, when you are told wait or no, or something happens different than you expected, just know this. The heart of God is to do whatever is best to make us the most joyful for the longest time. Joy comes from knowing God and dwelling in His presence, and an eternity with Him is the longest time possible. And so He will do whatever it takes to get your faith to the end of this life so you can maximally enjoy the next. So He answers some prayers. So that you would keep going. So that you would see his glory and his power. He says wait to others to keep you praying. And to keep you in relationship with him. He says no to others because they're downright dangerous for you. And you don't have the eyes to see it. Or the timing is wrong. But you must rest that our God is always at work. Always at work. And so He's always changing us through prayer. What's our response? Our response to this should be. We must be persistent in prayer. We must not stop praying. We must take everything to him. Luke 18:1 says this. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Keep praying. Don't lose heart. Why? Because it's so easy to lose heart. Don't give up. The response is we must persist in prayer. But the second one is we must repent of not trusting him. We must say, I trust you. I just do. I don't have it figured out. I trust you. The response to this is our God is good. He knows what is best and I trust him. The very first verse we ever memorized at TCC was every word of God proves true. And he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every single word. So trust him. And so now what we want to do is we want to begin to exercise this message into our lives immediately. Remember the two questions I asked you at the beginning? God, what's one way you want to change me that I might more fully worship you? And that begins with repentance. It begins with you saying, God, forgive me, where I am not trusting. Don't refuse to come to Him because you struggle to believe that He's never going to change or that the situation will never be different or that the addiction is too strong. Don't refuse to come to Him. Take the time and say, God, I'm not believing right now. I need you. Ask for faith. Take this moment to confess your weariness in fighting against a certain sin. Share your heart. Take this moment to pray for strength or for that next step of healing. Take this moment to pray your fears and your tears. Don't wait to clean them up. And take this moment to confess that Jesus is good and that this is the very thing he died for. Was to bring healing to the sinful heart. It is the sick who need a doctor. Not the well. Says Jesus. And so when we acknowledge we're sick. That is a step. Of drawing nearer. To our savior. Because he is the great physician. Of the soul.